Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's good to see you all. What a blessing. Next week, we will be having uh, communion after, directly after the service or as part as a service as we usually do. So that, looking forward to that. That should be great. And uh, we'll be in Job chapter 15, starting in verse 17 this morning. And let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us all and for the spirit you've given to fill us and regenerate us for the new life that we have through faith in Jesus. Thank you that we have a hope that's enduring beyond this world and that you sustain us in trials, that you reveal yourself to us and bless us in new ways beyond count. And we, we look to you now, Lord, to hear from you, to walk in your ways, to trust you more and rely upon you that you would be glorified in and through our lives and in our fellowship today. Lord, we, we rejoice that we can gather together in your name and proclaim your praises, making melody in our hearts unto you, and that we can read your word and proclaim it boldly, knowing that it is true and your words are life. And just thank you again, Lord, for your faithfulness to us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a valuable soft skill that doesn't always show up in a CV is being resourceful, I would say. Uh, it's more than a can-do attitude, but a will-do. It's using anything at your disposal to make something work. It's, it's not being limited to just one way of doing things, but overcoming obstacles by keeping an open mind, trying new things, keeping a positive outlook like we can do this, we can get through and... Uh, I find it really satisfying if I'm cooking and baking and I'm halfway through and I realize, oh no, I'm out of a main ingredient. And then I'm able to come up with, and Google's very helpful for this, come up with a substitution that actually works okay. It wouldn't be my preference, but at least I'm not wasting food. Uh, or a triumph, right? Maybe you've had this triumph where something breaks down and all right, what do we have? You go out to the garage, you find some tape, a scrap of wire, a tool, and you make it work, right? You get it, it, it's a temporary fix, but it's a victory that you celebrate and you say, uh, I mean, it probably would be not great to apply that to every aspect of life and just hold it together by tape. But hey, uh, when, you, when the shops aren't open, what can you do? So being resourceful. But no matter how resourceful you are, no matter how hard you try, sometimes a Humpty Dumpty moment occurs where you cannot put him back together again. That clumsy egg is just broken. And there's not enough tape or glue in the world to put this broken situation back together. And as many times as we've triumphed in our resourcefulness, we've also had to admit defeat. And there has been futility where we go, well, that's not going to work. That glue could not hold those two different types of materials together. We need a new fix. Job experienced such a disaster in losing his wealth, his 10 children, his health, the support of family and friends, and God was silent for a season, and there was nothing he could do to fix it. It seemed like prayer wasn't really having an effect. Um, his friends certainly were miserable comforters, and he felt ruined physically, emotionally, mentally. And trying to find satisfaction, trying to look on the bright side was just... He, he couldn't do it. There was no upside in what he was going through. And his friends came to comfort him. They ended up just accusing him of sin. 
And all he could look forward to was the release of his life in death. That's where he was at, where he's like, that's the only way my life could improve is when it's over and I don't have to be in this pain anymore. Now we have benefits that Job did not have in his suffering because we have the clarity of hindsight. We know that God would restore him. God would heal him, that God had good plans and intentions throughout this whole process that Job didn't understand and God never explained to him, but God was the answer. We also know that Jesus came to suffer and to die so sinners could be redeemed and reconciled to God. And I can't see an upside if my friend was crucified, but God redeemed that with according to his everlasting plan of salvation so that people could know God, people could be forgiven, they could have new life. So there is comfort for the hopeless. And apart from Christ, it is a futile existence to gather up goods that will pass to someone else, to labor and be lacking. But by Christ, we have a life that is satisfying and fruitful forever. And really, no matter what we can obtain in this life, Jesus is the only source of joy, love, and peace. And in our passage today, we pick up the second address of Eliphaz to Job in Job 15, verse 17. I will tell you, hear me, what I have seen, I will declare. What wise men have told, not hiding anything received from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given and no alien passed among them. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days and the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from darkness for a sword is waiting for him. He wanders about for bread saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle. For he stretches out his hand against God and acts defiantly against the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with his strong embossed shield. Eliphaz took exception at Job saying that he was innocent from sin. How can a man be righteous before God? So Job saying, I'm not guilty of sin that all this has befallen me. And Eliphaz is like, who are you to say that, Job? Because no one's righteous like God is. To say we have not sinned, it calls God a liar. And that is affirmed in 1 John uh, 1.10. That says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. The, tr- the Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. So we are all, as descendants of Adam, sinful. And the result of sin is death. The only way we can be made righteous before God is by faith in God. Like Abraham, he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And that time of ignorance is past, we read in the book of Acts, because God has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, the one who is going to judge the world for sin, a righteous God, the judge of all the earth who provides forgiveness and salvation and eternal life by faith through him. So we have the gospel laid out for us that Job didn't have. And Eliphaz spoke of what he had observed himself. He says, we've seen this wisdom passed down through the generations concerning the plight of the wicked, the one who does not know God. And we live in a world contrary to God. We live in a world that asserts man's basically good when God says, according to his righteousness, man is completely wicked. 
God created mankind in his own image, but Adam's rebellion against God caused sin to enter the world and death through sin. And that's why we die. You could, there could be many accidents that could happen. There could be an illness. There could be a wind that brings down the house on top of you. But the reality is the reason why death exists is because of sin in the world. Jesus was once addressed as good teacher. Like if we think people are basically good, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. Jesus pointing to the premise of the question and getting to the man's heart to say, do you think that I'm good, meaning God, or just I'm one rabbi amongst other rabbis? Will you believe and trust in me? In his wisdom, God gave us the law to expose our own wickedness so that we might see our need and turn from it and repent and trust in him. A lot of us have to be very convinced that we are really sick before we'll consider a cure, right? Like you need to not just be told that you're sick, you have to feel sick and go like, okay, I want this to end. What can I do to get some relief from these symptoms? The picture that Eliphaz paints really is startling. Are you guys startled by this? This man writhing in agony all his days in pain? It's truly uh, the fact of a, a soul in eternity apart from God. Without God, we are in bondage with pain for which there is no healing. And the pain can be physical. It can be guilt and regret. It could be an explosive emotion of rage, feeling bitter, helpless, and hopeless, and feeling like life is a waste of time and that no amount of our effort is really paying off in the end and that everything's against us, and even Christians can feel this way. And he says that prosperity, it makes you a target, a target of thieves and murderers. Remember, in those days, they didn't have uh, the kind of judicial systems that we have now, where if someone was rich and you had a group of guys, you could just take it off him, and who would get you in trouble? You were the law. You were a law unto yourself. Every man doing what was right in his own eyes. And then you could have all this wealth and then become ill. And just becoming sick was, could be a death sentence. Think of if there was no medical intervention in your life that even as a child, you, you may have passed and not made it to this day. So we have many blessings that he did not have. But he says, man knows death's coming for him. Man knows that he, he dreads the future. He dreads death. And there's a fear in his heart of losing everything, of losing himself and when we stumble in darkness, if we rebel against the God who gives us life, we cut ourselves off from our only hope. He talks of the wicked stubbornly going his own way. He's following his heart. He's feeding his flesh. He has this strong embossed shield. But at some point, his grip is going to be broken and he will be uh, broken himself. And then stripped before the Almighty in judgment for his sin. And that is a frightening proposition when we're guilty. What hope does a soul have when judged for sin before a righteous God? Our hands can't be clean by ourselves. Job 15, 27, though he has covered his face with fatness and made his waist heavy with fat, he dwells in desolate cities and houses in which no one inhabits 
which are destined to become ruins. He will not be rich, nor will his wealth continue, nor will his possessions overspread the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry out his branches, and by the breath of his mouth, he will go away. The book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon lays out his view of life and toil and, and the world really from a worldly perspective and saying vanity, everything is vanity. Everything is futile. Everything is vain and hopeless and empty because the wise man dies just like the fool. The wise is not remembered any more than the fool that you can work hard and invest your whole life in something that you must leave these goods now to people who didn't work for them. They didn't care for them. And he just thought like, this is a great evil that you could put in so much effort that you could acquire so much. And yet, where does it go? It goes to someone else and getting more doesn't cure you of your greed. It says, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. He who loves gold will not be satisfied with gold. The very thing that you say, I want that. When you get it, you're not satisfied with it because you want more of it or more of something else because you go, okay, this isn't what I really wanted. I wanted that. Platinum. Platinum's where it's at. Right? And those who can afford to eat and drink better they can die sooner because of a life of excess. The irony. Naked we are born, naked we depart this world in death. And he says, look at the grand estates of the wicked man. That it passes to someone else, that it doesn't endure forever. It goes to someone who didn't work for it. And there's a limit to how much wealth we can obtain. And in the darkness of the grave, in the blackness of a fiery hell... That is the future of all sinners apart from God. So it's a sobering thought. And like the birthday boy or girl blows out a few candles on the cake and everyone celebrates. It's like the, by the breath of God, he just speaks and your life is over. And so Eliphaz is saying, guys, if you're Job, if you are wicked before the Lord, what hope is there for you? You need God. Job had God. God had him. And that's the great thing. It doesn't depend on our grip. If God has us, we are protected. Even if we feel like everything is ruined. I like that he mentions a soul throughout this passage because God breathed into Adam the breath of life. He made him a living soul. And it only takes a few minutes of not breathing before the brain starts to suffer damage. This is what it says in Psalm 146, 3 and 4. It says, do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. So his breath departs, his spirit departs. And it doesn't matter if you're a royal or a commoner. When you stop breathing, you go the way of the earth. You pass away. And with that, your power to help. Job 15, 31, let him not trust in futile things, deceiving himself for futility will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like a vine and cast off his blossom like an olive tree for the company of hypocrites will be barren and fire will consume the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and bring forth futility. Their womb prepares deceit. Here, Eliphaz really provides some wise counsel that we ought not to trust in what's futile, empty, or worthless. 
And it's easy for us to ascribe greatness or put hope in something that's not worthy of us putting hope or trust in like money or accomplishments or titles or houses or goods. And the one who trusts in vain things, what does it say in verse 31? He's deceived himself. He has believed in what is futile. And so what is his reward? Futility, emptiness, vanity. Your net worth today, those five-star reviews, hundreds of thousands of followers, they can't do a thing to help you find favor with the Almighty before whom you will stand one day and give an answer. For every idle word will be brought into judgment. Now that's a very sobering thought, right? That everything we say, God knows, and he knows the attitudes of our hearts. Like a tree that's dead wood, he talks about a grape that falls off before it's ripe, a blossom that falls off before being pollinized. That's a picture of those who trust in themselves, and it's really not pretty. We'd never expect dead wood to grow anything, so that's like deadness. There's no hope of growth. But then you have the green grapes, and there's that potential that's wasted. You look at the grape and you say, oh man, that's going to be good. We're going to have some wine or whatever we're going to have with that. Those grapes, they'll be refreshing on a hot day. But then they fall off and they're on the ground. And you're like, oh, wasted, potential wasted. And then you have the blossoms. So you have that beautiful blossom that's bloomed, but then there's no fruit. So it gives you the hope that's dashed. And man, if you've lived any amount of time in the world, you can identify with these where you've had hopes that have been dashed, where there was this, this desire to see fruitfulness, but it wasn't there. Wasted potential delays. I learned, uh, I didn't know this before that when blossoms fall off an olive tree, it's usually because it's unseasonably warm and it means that the fruiting season will be delayed. And you know how delays can be a delay after delay, after delay, it can be very disheartening and very discouraging. And so when we're looking to something to give us the fruit we're longing for, we want this, we're desiring fruitfulness, but yet delayed again and delayed again. We just feel overwhelmed. Just think how much we can take for granted as believers because we look at this sobering picture and it's good for us as uncomfortable as it is to linger on these verses a little bit because it's easy for us to say, okay, these don't apply to me because I'm in Christ. But what about Job? He trusts God and he's suffering. He's in pain. He's feeling like his prayers are futile. Like he's not accomplishing anything. Samson was a man who has supernatural strength from God and he took it for granted and God, in a season, took that away from him. He's being lulled to sleep on Delilah's knees. And she says, get up, Samson. The Philistines are upon you. And he said to himself, he did not knowing that the Holy Spirit had left him. He says, I will arise as at other times and shake myself free. He couldn't. No matter how he tried. He was bound. He was blinded. He was incarcerated. He was enslaved to the Philistines. He became weak as every other man, but Christ, he has conquered the grave. He has conquered death. He has conquered sin. And he's given us the victory through faith in him. 
Psalm 135, 15 through 18, it says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Idolatry, it exposes our poverty, our weakness and folly. God's able to redeem us from idolatry. But like those images that are broken down and melted for their precious resources, that's the end of those who trust in themselves. It's like that money that can be stolen away, burned up, lost. That's the fate of those who trust in those things. Lost, lost forever. So praise the Lord, we have a hope, a living hope in Jesus Christ. That it's not a futile existence. All things are working together for good to those who love God. And God has redemptive purposes even in the pains that we go through. And it's faith that enables us to believe that and to keep trusting him when we're not seeing the fruit we're looking for. Knowing that he is our supply. Continuing in Job 16, verse 1, Job's answer. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall words of wind have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. Job responds with a bit of a rebuke here for Eliphaz. And his friends, they had come like, oh, we're going to comfort you. And he's like, you guys are doing a terrible job. Miserable, ter- awful. And what, what had he done to elicit such a judgmental response except to suffer and have pain and weep? Was it a sin to be robbed, to be bereaved or to fall sick? Is that evil? No, God had allowed this. Was it right to treat him like an enemy and to accuse him of sin without evidence before God? And Job's like, I've heard this a lot. I've heard many such things. And I could say the same things to you if our roles were reserved, uh, reversed. If you were sitting in the dust of ashes and I was still maintaining my health and wealth, I could say such things to you. And what could you answer? So he's saying, just think about, put yourself in my place. I could give you advice about what you ought to do or how God's more righteous than you and shake my head at you and mock you. He says, I could speak as you do if your soul were in my soul's place. Now that word soul in the Hebrew, it means life or being with an ultimate source in God. You as a human being, you're more than just a height, weight, eye color, and a fingerprint. You have... Uh, a soul within you. That's like the real you. It goes beyond your DNA or genetics. It's, it's what separates people from plants and animals and angels and all other living things. God has given you a living soul. You have a soul under your skin. Job says, if I was going to speak to you, if you were in my place, I would speak to comfort you. I would want to relieve your grief. And God is the only one who has the power to heal a broken heart, to comfort us in our souls. It's like putting food in someone's mouth is not going to heal their grief or jokes or cliches. It does nothing to strengthen your soul. I like what 
Asaph wrote in Psalm 77. Here was a guy who was doing some soul searching. He was wondering about like, man, I have comfort offered to me. My soul refuses to be comforted. Have you ever been in that situation where you have offers of comfort or hope, even from the Bible, and you're like, not today. I can't bring myself to receive that. It says his sleepless mind, it's racing with questions. He's full of worries and fears. If you could turn in your Bibles to Psalm 77, look at what changed Asaph's perspective. He was losing sleep. He's worrying. He's afraid. And this is what shifted things for him in Psalm 77 verse 11. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. Because God is the God of all comfort and remembering the things God had done in the past and speaking of his marvelous works, Asaph's outlook changed. His perspective was altered. He's not focused on the wicked anymore and their schemes and how they seem to get away with them. He instead turns his focus to God, remembering and speaking of the great things he had done. And there's no greater comfort than knowing God. Remembering and sharing what he has done in the past gives us strength. And he points out a couple of people there. Jacob and Joseph. People that God preserved. People whose lives were in danger. People who, like Jacob, he wrestled with God. God touched him and changed him. Joseph, he was sold as a slave. He was in prison. He was accused of rape. And God brought him out and promoted him in the kingdom. And through him saved many people. It's like, just think about what God does that he brings these great reversals and transformations and hope where there was none in that dungeon. What, what hope did he have of saving nations as he was incarcerated for years? None. He wasn't even thinking about that, but God purposed it and he would redeem it. God spoke through the prophet in Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. And this is part of the issue. God says, here is the way to find rest for your souls. When you walk in my ways. And they said, no. They didn't want to walk in his way. They didn't want to listen to him or receive the Christ. So they were without rest. But there is satisfaction. There is rest for those who trust the Lord. If this verse points to Jesus who is the way from the beginning. Who in Matthew eleven twenty eight, by faith in him, he says, you will find rest for your souls. Not just for your weary body, but for your soul. An enduring rest. Praise God for the gospel. Continuing in Job 6, 16, verse 6. Though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? But now he has worn me out. You have made desolate all my company. 
You have shriveled me up and it is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. He tears me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. Job believed in God. Job spoke of God, but he wasn't experiencing any relief at this time. And look at his perspective. He's lamenting his circumstances. He's thinking about what's happening to him, what he's feeling right now, what he thinks God's intentions are, which he was incorrect about. Did God hate him? No, but he felt like God hated him. He felt like God was his adversary. He felt like God was against him. That wasn't the case, but he very much felt that way. We can't fault him for this because we've been overwhelmed by far less, haven't we? Part of his grief and confusion came from the point that it was God who was afflicting him. And he was trying to sort out how this was possible. Have you ever had like a sore spot on your back and you're like, can you look at this? I've got like a really painful area. and Someone, usually your spouse or someone close to you is not grossed out by, well, they may be grossed out, but they're willing to deal with things that you can't see. And they you know, lance it with a needle or you're like, go. Oh! And you think, all right, I was a bit sensitive because the area is sore, but did you do that on purpose? Were you being careless? Do you not care about me? Have you ever had that happen? We are kind of wondering about their motives because they've, it seemed like they did that on purpose and you're not quite sure. I mean, you asked them to help you, but you weren't prepared for that. So you kind of wondered, hmm, Job was like that. He was hurting. He was grieving. In his pains, he said, God's tearing me apart in his wrath. God hates me. He's like an, an adversary. I can't escape. And he sent these people to just bash me and take advantage of me and my weakness. And that they're striking me reproachfully. He's, he's reading into their intent. And that's huge. Kids can understand intent. If it's an accident, a kid can shake that off. But if someone did that on purpose, they break down. They're upset about that because they, they were hit on purpose. They were, they were spoken to out of anger. It wasn't accidental. Moving on in John, Job 16, 11. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me to, over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He has also taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target his archers surrounded me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. Job's really struggling to process why God would deliver him into the hand of the ungodly. Why? Why, God, would you shake me to pieces like a terrier does a rat? Like adding wound upon wound. Why would you do this? When we've encountered unexpected behavior from someone, we're having a conversation and suddenly they get up and kind of storm out. That's, we're interpreting their actions. And we think something like, was it something I said? What's wrong with them? Right? We're trying to justify why they're doing what they're doing. When the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans came and stole Job's stuff and they killed his servants, he could have understood 
on a level why they might do it. He's like, well, they were hungry or they had debts to pay or they're greedy or they want more. Like he could have in his mind said, this is why people do things like this. It's because they don't care. Okay. So we have a little answer there, but Job cannot understand why God would you set me up for target practice? Why do you surround me with archers and shoot me through? Why would you do this? Many people, including Christians, have struggled with the same feelings. They wonder, how can people say God is good when this pain is so bad? Why me? And like in Job's case, there's plenty of people who are willing to give their opinions about what you should do or what you have done to invite such trouble upon you. Or if the suffering person is not getting those quick results that they don't really have faith or they obviously need to do more. Right? So it's really their problem and they're partially responsible for their condition. And some can be duped into this false dichotomy that anything that bad that happens to me is of the devil and anything that's seemingly good is of God. When Satan is the one taking Jesus and saying, I'll give you all this if you'll just worship me. And a lot of people want the world and the devil will give you the world for your soul. And this thinking, this dichotomy When you're suffering, when you're in pain, it's caused genuine believers to waver and to wonder with self-condemnation, like, am I even saved? Is my faith even genuine? Now, it's important to realize the why questions that we have may never be answered. And there's good reasons for this. God's ways and his thoughts are higher than our ways. And a lot of times when we ask why, We like to get on the judgment seat. We like to climb up there and determine whether it's a good enough reason. Say, well, why has this happened? Well, because of this. Okay, that makes sense. It makes sense to you. But if God's ways are higher than yours and his thoughts are higher than yours, his answer may not make sense to you. And you'll reject it as folly when it's God. So we have to realize where where we stand and God's ways are so much higher and he doesn't need to explain himself to us. Many times we ask why to see if we agree with the reason provided. And when we're in pain, we can think of a million options that seem much more efficient and practical than us having to suffer anymore. Right? We're like, okay, God, you can do anything. Well, why can't you just make this one thing stop, please? Or help this situation improve so I can see it. I exhort you, brothers and sisters, allow your unanswered why questions to be answered by the revelation of our merciful, just, and loving, and gracious God in Scripture. When you fix your eyes upon Him, the why begins to dissolve. Our wonderings begin to fade away, and those fears and those cares and those anxieties that they provoked, we find relief there. And rest for our souls in the goodness and sovereignty of God. I like what Matthew Henry wrote. He said, whoever are our enemies, we must look upon them as God's archers and see him directing the arrow. It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. Now you guys may remember that quote where Eli was told by Samuel that God would judge his house for the wickedness Eli knew and he did nothing about it. And when he heard this, Eli goes, it's the Lord. Let him do what seems good. Now, that resignation to the Lord's will was good, 
But there was no repentance in Eli. He didn't remove his children from their posts. He didn't repent or confess his sin. He just acknowledged that God will do what's right. So may there be in us a resignation to God's sovereignty and rule, but also repentance when it is about our sin, when there are areas that we need to confess and forsake and then do the right thing before the Lord. Believing we'll see the goodness of God in the land of the living. David said that I would have fainted unless I believed that God was going to do good and I'm going to see it. And we can, we can have that hope, that assurance and expectation. Job was not facing God's wrath or being judged for his sins because he was hated by God. That trial was intended to prove and strengthen his faith that was real. Continuing in Job 16, 15, I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and laid my head in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Although no violence is in my hands and my prayer is pure. Oh, earth, do not cover my blood and let my cry have no resting place. Surely even now my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man as a man pleads for his neighbor. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. Job continues to lament his grief. People in those days wore sackcloth as mourning. It was basically like a, a bag of weaved of goat's hair that you'd cut a hole in the top and two armholes and you'd wear it and he's wearing it against his bare skin. It was uncomfortable and he's sitting there. That's all he's wearing as he's sitting in sackcloth and ashes and he was miserable. He's grieving his losses. He's continuing to pray, but he's met with silence from God. His eyes are puffy. His face is red and swollen. I mean, he looked like he had been crying and he's saying, I'm not guilty of violence. I don't know why this is happening, but like, oh, earth, don't cover up my cries. Don't um, cover my blood. When Cain slew Abel, his brother, God said, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. God was aware of the violence and the murder that had taken place. And Job's like, don't let my cries go unheard. I need to be heard. I want to be vindicated. He found no comfort in himself or in his friends. Only God could vindicate him. And if sorrow and suffering was proof of his guilt, it would take a miracle to deliver him. And I love verse 19 because it's this flash of white hot faith in the midst of sorrow and pain because he's like, I have a witness in heaven. All the evidence is carefully kept for my case as an advocate would for me. It's been preserved. What a comfort. We've talked about God bringing every idle word into judgment, but also a comfort to know there is a God who knows our hearts, who loves us, who is our advocate, who is our intercessor, who will set things right. He longed, oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. It's like, I need someone to plead my case in heaven. There was such desperation in Job for God to do something for him. His life was drawing to an end. And he's like, what's the point of crying if my grief continues? Why cry out if no one's listening? 
What's the point of presenting my evidence if the judge hates me? And futility, doubts, fears, worries, that's where that leads. Those why, whys and wonderings. And it's likely many of us have felt like Job did. We've looked for help from futile things. Futility was our reward. We can lose sight of Christ in the storm. And our pain can cause us to forget the awesome promises that God has given us in his word. And God knows our hearts. And we forget that it's in the hard times when our faith is proved, where it's strengthened, where it's productive and fruitful in a way that it's not the kind of fruit we're wanting. It's not necessarily what we value, but God does. Trials and pains, it can expose our lack of faith. I remember talking to a girl years ago who was like, you know, because of the things I'm going through right now, I feel like God's pushing me away. Everything that something bad happens, I just want to go away from God rather than to him. Is that a problem? And I was like, yes, that is really when your faith is genuine and you do suffer are because we trust the Lord, we will go towards him in difficulty rather than run from him and try to get away from God. We want to go to him because we know he's our help. He's our hope. And so the thing that you think is faith, it could just be some plastic jewelry. That's not, that's not real. It's not genuine. And so God will allow us to see us to see what God already knows that the thing we've thought was faith in us was really false. And to then place our faith in him. To take away those false supports. It's kind of like, you know, you're with your friends and you're building a fort. And uh, you're like, this is stable. This is solid. And you start taking away a support or two and the whole thing just collapses. And you realize, oh, it really wasn't that strong. I thought it was strong enough to hold us if we all got up here. But, um, and it's good when God exposes our weakness. Because then we'll look to him for his strength and his deliverance. And we'll realize the thing I've been trusting, it's futility, it's vain, it's empty. We have a hope. We have an expectation of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ that we know there are eternal rewards we have yet to receive. There's a lot that God has promised us that we have received and there are some things that we have yet to receive. Uh, we've been born again and filled with the Holy Spirit. By faith in Christ, we have a hope. We have an expectation of redemption. Paul said this, uh, and why don't you turn there to Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 24. He's talking about you don't hope for something you already have. If you already have it, there's really no need to hope for it because you have it. Romans 8, 24. He says, for we are saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray at for as we ought. But the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So because of faith in Jesus Christ, we don't have to hope for help. We don't have to hope for strength or for an intercessor because we already have them through faith in Jesus. 
We know him. We have received him. Because we believe him, we receive this. You may not be seeing what you want to see today. And we can often be looking for the wrong things. We take our eyes off Jesus. We forget that he holds us, that he provides strength for the day, that he gives us help in our weaknesses. And I love that verse there where it says in verse 25, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So the things that you have not received that you know are God's for you to be healed, to experience his rest, this is for you to enter into. You don't have to hope for it hopelessly. Like, I hope that'll happen. We can know it and receive it and walk in it. What joy and delight we have, uh, even when it seems we are without help in this world. Have you guys noticed that sometimes you can't look on the bright side of something? No matter how you try. You're like, I'm, tr I'm trying really hard to be positive. I'm trying to look on the bright side here, but I'm struggling. Or there's a bad situation. We say, how can I make the best out of this? And there's no upside. You're not able to see it. And the truth is, our efforts to find satisfaction, peace, joy, and rest, they can be futile. They can be vain. But may our whys and our wonderings make way for faith that praises the Lord, that remembers him, the things that he's done, that begins to speak of the things God has done, knowing that he will do the same for us because he does not change. He is good. He was good to them. He was faithful to his people to provide, and he will do the same for you and for me. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you see, all the blossoms can fall off the tree. All those green grapes that you were just celebrating their appearance, and they're on the ground. You're like, ah! Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He will strengthen your heart. May Psalm 146, 1 and 2 be that joyful exhortation and also resignation in our hearts. It says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Faith in God brings such satisfaction to our souls. Just think of that. While I live, I will praise the Lord. What does Jesus give you? Eternal life. So how long will you be praising the Lord? Forever. And forever is today too. It's not just when we get out of this trouble, when we start feeling better. Look to the Lord, hope in him, and find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we have such a strong exhortation in your word to praise you and to glorify you and to trust you that you have, you have been faithful in the past. And may we remember your kindness to us. May we remember the promises you have given and celebrate your goodness all our days. And thank you that we can make melody in our hearts to you, that we can turn our eyes to you and, and the, the enemies don't disappear the pain doesn't immediately dissipate. But Lord, you are near and you hold us. You comfort us. You help us. And we're able to comfort others with the comfort we have received from God. So I ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see those vain things, those futile things we've looked to for hope. We've looked for light where there is none. And we've become discouraged. Lord, I pray we would look to Jesus, who is the light of the world, 
who is the light of life, who gives life and liberty to all who believe. Thank you for the eternal life you've given us and for the hope of salvation, for the presence of your spirit, for your healing power in our lives and the, the way that you can redeem trials for your glory and our good. We magnify and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.